It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we have the distinct pleasure of having a guest who is an award-winning vocalist. She is a pianist, a composer, a producer, and a journalist. Her name is Fiona Ross. Don't you know I'm doing my thing, doing my thing, doing my thing, doing my thing, my thing. Oh, doing my thing, doing my thing, doing my thing, doing my thing, my thing. And I'm doing your thing. Fiona, thanks for joining us here on All That's Jazz. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to chatting to you. You know, I, I'd like to start out by asking you uh, a question. After reading about you and listening to some of your music over the last several days, in my opinion, I think you might be best described by the name of one of your albums and the name of one of your songs, and that is Fierce and Noncompliant <laughs> and Doing My Thing. Did I get that right? <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, doing my thing I talk about all the time because, I mean, that's that's what I do. I'm just doing my thing. And sometimes it's easier to rather than to describe it, to just say, well, yeah, I'm just doing my thing. But the fierce and non-compliant thing, um, I think, comes from my mother, to be honest. And the, and the album cover I chose for that was a photo that she took of me when I was, gosh, I think it was about six. And I look like this stroppy kind of you know, diva that is absolutely naughty and definitely fierce. Fierce and non-compliant, that's what they say. Fierce and non-compliant, that's who I am today. Gonna set the world on fire, I've seen it written down. They make me sound like something, I'm just doing my thing. They make me sound all sassy and maybe that's true. If trying to do your thing makes you sassy, who knew? So some people say I'm still like that a little bit, but in a in a nice way, I hope. <laughs> well, you can be fierce and non-compliant in a nice way, as you're saying. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to be mean-spirited about it. Uh, it's just that you're establishing yourself. And when you walk in a room, you say, I'm here, take note. But that's <laughs> not a bad thing. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, I think jazz is where this comes into play because it gives you the freedom to do whatever you want. So I think jazz as a genre is non-compliant, isn't it? Uh, and, and being non-compliant is kind of fierce too. So it's, it, it, in some ways, it's not as groundbreaking as it sounds, um, but jazz is that perfect genre to, to kind of break the rules or kind of, you know, not even have any rules. So uh, yes, that's the, the non-compliant bit, I think. Well, I think it's also indicative of the music that you've produced uh, because most of it, uh, from what I could see, is things that you have composed rather than you doing covers of someone else's music. 
Yeah, it's all my own material. I don't do any covers at all, actually. So um, how many albums? I've done four albums uh, and it's all original material. But I mean, I love the jazz standards and I, and I love you know many other uh, kind of songs. But no, my albums is my own material. Yeah. When you do live performance, do you do covers at all or do you just stick to your mission? Well, <laughs> my mission, I, I generally stick in maybe one, but that will depend on the venue. And it's funny, actually, I did a gig um, pre-COVID when we were allowed to do such things. Uh, and it was kind of quite a traditional jazz club. And I wasn't sure how they were going to take my music um, because it's um, defined as contemporary jazz, whatever whatever that really means. But I wasn't, I wasn't sure if they would kind of like my kind of music. So um, I had half the set was jazz standards. Um, and I thought, you know, I'll, I'll throw in a few of my own songs, but it'd probably be safer if I do the jazz standards. And the, and the first um, half was jazz standards. And then I, I put in one of my songs at the end of the set. And then it was the interval. And the audience came up to me and said, please tell me you're going to come and do more of your own songs. We, we hear the jazz standards all the time. We'd like to hear your material. So I kind of changed the whole. So the second set, I just did my my music. So, yeah, I, I throw in jazz standards every now and again um, when I feel I need to, I think is the best way to put it. But I do love seeing my one of my favorite jazz standards is Good Morning Heartache. That that one I quite often put in as an as acoustic. So, yeah. <laughs> so as a as an artist who stays true to uh, composing your own music, do you find that to be more pressure than doing covers of somebody else and, and trying to do decent covers and arrangements of those songs? That's a really good question, actually. I think with the jazz standards, and also I think my heroes, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, I mean, all these amazing, great vocalists, it's it's really hard <laughs> to kind of tackle, you know, well, actually Ella sang it like this or Billy sang it like that. And then to kind of approach it as a vocalist and say, right, I'm going to do it this way. That's really hard. And, and I, there's a lot of pressure with that. And I know I would be judging if I heard someone singing a kind of Ella Fitzgerald standard, I probably got Ella's version in my head. And, and it's not nice to have that comparison, but it's very difficult to separate that. Whereas with my own music, I have literally no thoughts at all. I, I just write whatever is in my head. I'm not, I'm not influenced by anything other than the crazy stuff that's going on in my head at the time. So I guess in some, it, it's easier to be original with my own material. Well, the material is great. Uh, and I, I find it very interesting because it seemingly, in terms of a recording artist, that it's come somewhat late in life for you because you have this diverse background and the music in terms of albums is only of the last five years. Why the delay or what took so long? What does it look, well, I think um, I've been performing since I was about two. So I had this crazy stage mum. So in fact, do you know the film Gypsy with Natalie Wood and Ro that my mum was like that. So I grew up with this kind of like, really, <laughs> I grew up with this crazy stage mom uh, and I was trained to do theater. So I was trained as a dancer and as an actress and to do musical theater and music was a, a sideline. So I was learning the piano and kind of doing the classical music side of things as a bit of a sideline, but my mission was um, stage work and, and I did an awful lot of that. Um, but then I um, fell in love uh, and, and got pregnant. 
uh, and my career suddenly took a very different direction. So I stopped doing dancing because obviously when you're, when you're pregnant, it's a little bit tricky to kind of do full on <laughs> stage work. Um, and then I kind of moved into more session work and I was doing choreography. And so I was doing other things that weren't center stage. So I was working for other people. Um, and then I fell into education uh, again as, um, as a way to uh, make ends meet and kind of put, pull all those things together. And then I ended up, uh, after a very long story, as, as head of the British Academy of New Music. So kind of education took a very key um, part of my life. And um, yes, yeah, so I was doing all those different things. And then, yeah, five years ago, I decided I'm going to stop doing that. I'm, I'm now going to do my thing. So although I've been in the industry literally all my life, as a jazz artist, I can consider myself absolutely, I, I'm, I'm a newbie. I'm quite new at it, really. So is this a matter of rebranding in terms of your life and the direction that you've taken? Um, I, I guess in some ways. I mean, you know, I, I had very clear direction from a very early age to kind of, in fact, my mum wanted me to be the next Julie Andrews. That that was her mission. And in fact, the school I went to was the same school that Julie Andrews went to. Obviously, she wasn't there at the same time. Um, but that was a path that was kind of, you know, laid out for me. And then kind of a sudden change of direction Um uh, and then I think I just thought, you know, I'm at the, and I don't even think it was an age thing. I think it was just a few different things that combined. So, you know, my children were a little bit older, so they didn't need me quite as much. Um, I'd been, you know, working in education. The the company I was working with had a new owner. I wasn't particularly comfortable. So all the, I think a, a combination of all these, these all these things, and I just left this job. And I didn't plan to do music, actually. And I left this job and... Uh, and I was thinking, well, I probably need to get another job or kind of think about what I'm doing. And then actually one of my colleagues um, bumped into me about a month after I left and said, oh, yo, how are you doing? I take it you're doing your music now. And I was like, yes. Do you know what? <laughs> this is what I should be doing. And from that moment on, that's what I've been doing. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I would like to qualify the question that I had earlier about yeah. your coming late in life with the music part of it. Because I know your mom, as you've indicated, wanted you to be the actress and dancer and, and move in that direction. But mm. you started playing piano at a very young age. And then you used to lie about your age when you were about 14 and go to <laughs> jazz clubs to sing. I was very, no and this is where your fierce and non-compliant comes in, because I think that <laughs> when I was younger, I was very much like that. And um, yeah, I remember because I was going to auditions and uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of this train of continual auditions for kind of different things, um, for kind of shows and adverts and all these different things. And I was in London and how old was I? Yeah, I think the first time I was about 13 and, um, and it was a pub and there was a piano. Uh, and I went in there with a friend of mine and I just started playing. And, uh, and the landlord um, slowly has put a jar around. So they had this like beer glass tankard uh, and, and everyone started putting money in it. And I remember at the time I earned a hundred pounds. People were just putting money in. And then after it, the landlord said, well, do you want to do this every week? And I was like, yes, okay. And I remember feeling really proud that I'd got my own job that kind of finally, you know, I did this myself. I've kind of got a proper gig and it was in the most awful kind of nasty little, <laughs> little pub, but I was really proud. 
And I remember going home and my mum was furious. Uh, but I, I think my dad was secretly proud. It was one of those kind of like she's gone out there and kind of got her own work. And that started me, I think, on a bit of a journey of kind of going into clubs that I wasn't old enough to go into because this was back in the day when you didn't need ID you know if you put some makeup on and put some heels on and you know you could easily look a little bit older and and the, the doorman would take your word for it and um, so yes I was always sneaking into clubs and if there was a piano I would just go and sit on the piano and play well that that's pretty amazing and I, I I'm <laughs> I, I think it it shows about your personality and your courage as well as your I guess state of mind of doing things your way and, and you are going to do it. <laughs> yes, I guess so, actually. And I've thought about this a lot because quite often, and I'm sure you asked this of, of kind of your guests, you know, when, you, when did you decide that this was the career for you? Did you have that moment of this is where I'm going to go? And I never had that moment because it's always what I've done. And as I say, I think my first professional job, I was like two. I think my mum put me into some modelling and I, and I had, so I'm naturally very ginger. So when I was little, I had a very specific kind of ginger freckles look. And um, so for kind of adverts and things like that, it was kind of, it was a thing. Um, so I, I never made that choice. It was just always what I I did but don't get me wrong I never objected I never had a moment of I don't want to do this at all so I guess somehow my parents just knew this is what I was supposed to do but it was still not my choice so I think as I've got older there's an element in me of kind of saying but I want to do it my way you know yes I want to do this but you know I want to do it my way so yeah or I'm just naughty I mean you know <laughs> there's a few ways of thinking of it really <laughs> so when did fairy dishwashing soap come into your life oh gosh I think I was about f I mean the things I did when I was little as I say um yeah I think I was about five I uh, I did an advert for that I also did one for um tomato ketchup I think is it daddy's tomato ketchup I did an Ovaltine advert um I did all sorts of uh, kind of bizarre um, commercial stuff and then my first big thing was um in the west I was Annie in the west ends so that was kind of you know that was quite a big thing but I've done yeah all sorts all sorts of funny things and as I got older it probably says this on my site actually I was a backing singer for a band called Rocking Willie and the Y-Fronts that was a big moment <laughs> Rocking Willie and the Y-Fronts yep it was a, a 50s rock and roll band and I was a backing singer <laughs> fantastic so w when you were doing adverts, uh, as you put it, these weren't necessarily jingles that you composed, uh, or were they? No, no, no. And this was, you're talking, I was about, I think this was between the age of kind of five and ten, maybe. So it was when I was very little, kind of, uh, so yeah, very small. So I wasn't, I wasn't composing when I was that young, I don't think. Now, were you singing, or was it just uh, acting? Oh, singing. Oh, it was singing. Yeah, I, yeah it was always singing. Do you want to give us a little rendition of fairy dishwashing soap? Oh, no, I can't even remember that. It was so long ago, but I, now I wish I knew. Otherwise, I would sing it for you. What about <laughs> yeah, the ketchup? I, I generally, I'd, oh, no, I'd, I'd have to think about it. Oh, if I'd known that, I could have researched it. and re It's probably online somewhere. I don't know. I'm really, so it was that, see, I'm that old. It's that long ago. Annie, I can remember, but the stuff before that, I don't, it's a blur. <laughs> well, it's probably a good thing that you can't remember it because then they would have to pay you royalties for uh, singing it. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so a very interesting and diverse career uh, that you've had. 
but when did journalism and writing come into the picture for you? Because you really are a very strong writer and, and very good at command of the English language. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, but I think it's interesting, actually, having kind of made it sound... Um, and in some ways it is kind of where I've been very clear with direction and kind of decision making actually quite often things just happen and I'm very much a go with the flow kind of person and my writing is a prime example of that I, I never had any intention it didn't even cross my mind to kind of do uh, that type of writing and I was contacted by um, a publication that said you know they'd love me to do some reviews uh, and I kind of said, I said, well, I've never done anything like that at all. Um, so I'm not experienced. And they said to me, but no, we actually we want a musician. We want, you know, rather than having um, an academic or kind of a trained journalist, we'd actually like just a musician, you know, to kind of listen to music from that point of view. And um, so I said, well, I'll give it a go. And I did a couple of reviews and then they asked me to do an interview which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I much preferred doing the interview. It's you know nice talking to people, finding out what makes them tick. And then you may say this is a fierce, a non-compliant type of thing. I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it properly. And, and I'm like that with, with everything. I, and I do um, thank my mother for that. I was brought up to believe if you work hard enough, you can do anything you want to do. So I've, got, I've always had this mentality of everything is within reach if I put the right amount of work in. So I thought interviews, okay. So I wrote a list of a lot of my heroes and role models of people I thought would be amazing to interview. So Dee Dee Bridgewater, Steve Gadd, I mean, <laughs> all these big people. And, and bearing in mind, I'd only written three articles and I went online and tried to find out their manager's details. And I emailed them all and just said, yeah, I'm a new writer, I'd love to interview you. And the first one that came back was Steve Gadd. Uh, and that basically set my path, if you like, uh, for writing on, on a different level. And it very quickly and wonderfully escalated. And then I did Dee Bridgewater. And then suddenly I was kind of like, oh, OK, I'm I'm a writer now. Uh, and then it turned out, actually, I, my family are full of writers, uh, which I didn't realize. Um, my I think my granddad owned a bookshop in Scotland. Um, I had a, another relative who was the speechwriter for a prime minister in India randomly. So I, I have you know, writing in my family, interestingly. But uh, yeah, I fell into it. There was no other plan to it. and But I love it. I do love it. What were your parents' professions? Uh, what did they do? They were mathematicians. And in fact, my whole fam my whole immediate family are mathematicians. So my brother's a mathematician, his wife is a mathematician, and my mum and dad were mathematicians. But secretly, my mum always loved performing. I think she was one of those, well, as I say, very much like the gypsy film. She always wanted to perform, and she did amateur dramatics and all that kind of thing, um, but never did it. Um, and my dad, you know, we always went to the theatre. So they've always loved that, but no, mathematicians, basically. So they were living vicariously through you then? <laughs> yes, <laughs> it appears that way. <laughs> well, you've accomplished yourself very well uh, on the writer side of the scale as well, because you're also a uh, senior writer for Jazz in Europe. Yeah, I think the, I think the key thing for me about writing is, and I thought about this when I first started and, and talking about kind of who I am as an artist. I was like, well, who am I as a writer? When I first started to do this, like, you know, I looked at loads of different writers and was trying to trying to figure out, well, how do I find out what sort of writer I am? And for me, the key point was realizing the purpose of it. 
And the purpose of it is it's not actually about me. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to be in a position to share other people's stories. And, and once I realized that, that kind of took some of the pressure off me and I can focus on the fact that, you know, my role is helping others, is sharing people's stories, making sure they know about music. So um, that's what's wonderful. Um, and, and jazz in Europe are great for that. And I have this amazing platform that I can share some phenomenal musicians with the world. So tell me about your being the founder of uh, Women in Jazz Media. Yes, well, again, classic fee, as, as what some people would say, and it was the uh, end of November, and I was looking at, um, and I won't name the publications, but yeah, and I do this often, I look at different publications, and sometimes it tells you who the writers are, and you, you can click on, and there was one particular publication, and they had all the photos of the writers, which is rare, uh, and it was this massive page, it was about 52 writers, and I was like, well, that's, that's, that's huge, uh, but there was only two women. Uh, and at that point, and everyone was white as well. So it was, everyone was white and there was only two women. And I just kind of thought, you know, I've just had enough, I've had enough of this. And I see this all the time. But on that particular day, for whatever reason, I decided, where are the female writers? You know, where, where is the, the diversity? Where is the equality? So I decided, well, I'm just going to start a Facebook group. I'm going to start a Facebook group, a little community. You know, let's reach out and see where, where the female writers are. And then the very next day, I got this amazing email, a direct message on Facebook from a writer in China. And she said to me, I'm so glad I found this page. I've been writing about jazz for seven years. I don't know any other women who do that. You know, I've been desperately looking for other women. And then I got one from someone in Spain. And it very quickly escalated into this massive and beautiful community. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I better do it properly. Um, so we formed this organization um, to really, I mean, the, the dream is an equal and diverse jazz industry. You know, it, it really is that simple. It's nothing more complicated than that. And that's from a performance point of view. That's from a publication point of view. So writers, photographers, composers, producers, you know, the dream is that it's all uh, equal and diverse. So, yes, I started Women in Jazz Media to, to solve that one. So I think it was during the pandemic you, you started doing some writing. Uh, it was called the Lunchtime Lockdown. Yes, well, again, with lockdown, um, I was, because I was very fortunate uh, in the position I was in, um, because I'd actually allocated that time to work on my next album. So I personally didn't have any gigs booked for kind of a few months because I wasn't supposed to be gigging. It was time I'd set aside for writing. Um, but what I saw was so many of my friends and colleagues in the industry suffering you know, no money, no income. I mean, it was, it's been horrendous. And I just, I didn't know what to do. I was like, well, how, how can I actually help people? You know, what can I do to support the community, the you know, musicians during this time? Um, and I thought, well, hang on, I've got these platforms that I can use to promote and share their work, um, but also provide some inspiration for others. So yes, I interviewed um, different people around the world about what they were doing in their lockdown. So if they were writing, what they were doing to keep themselves sane. Um, and that was, yeah, that was so much fun to do that, but hopefully kind of, you know, helped people. Well, you did a, an interview with a, a good friend of ours and a, and a, a marvelous artist uh, that we got to know through this podcast, and that was Simone Gubbiati. Ah, yes, indeed. Yes. Well, he also writes for Jazz in Europe, actually. 
Yes. Yeah, he's lovely. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've, I've actually, I don't think we've actually met, like physically. We've spoken and we were going to meet up when he came over to England, actually. But no, he's wonderful and wonderful guitarist as well. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a treat doing an episode with him and, and hearing his story, which was very compelling and, and very, in some ways, tragic, but it ended up in the right place. Oh, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I interviewed him. I think that's how I first got to know him, actually. Oh, an incredible story. Incredible story. And yeah, an amazing journey. So yeah, no, he's, a, he's an amazing guy. So speaking of journeys, uh, let's get back to the road that you've taken that puts you into the studio to do recording uh, when you produced your first album of four as a leader back in, I think, 2016. Uh, it was uh, A Twist of Blue. What was the impetus behind that? Well, um, when I left um, my job at the British Academy of New Music, uh, and as I think I'm, I mentioned earlier about kind of, oh, yeah, I'm going to do music now. I thought, well, I've already got this album. So I'd already recorded that album um, a little while before that time, but I didn't do anything with it because I was juggling too much. You know, I had a full-time job. I had children. I was doing all these different things. So I kind of recorded this album, but did nothing with it. So when I decided I'm going to give music a go as an artist in my own right, I thought, well, I'll just release that album because that's all ready to go while I work on another album. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I kind of popped that one out, which was already done, and then decided to work on a, on a new project, which ended up as a double album. And I think this is part of the thing. I mean, people say that I'm a prolific writer, but for me, it's like, well, not really. It's because I haven't been doing it that long, but it, it doesn't mean the ideas haven't been there. You know, so I've got all these different ideas in my head and they're just, they're just ready to go. I dare say if I'd been doing kind of my own material for 20 years, I probably certainly wouldn't be <laughs> writing quite so much. I'm sure the ideas will run out um, but at the moment uh, they're there but uh, but yeah I just thought you know okay let's let's release an album let's get some material out there and, and see how it goes of all of the four albums that you've done is there one that is a, a standout for you um no I think I mean no but I think for me, there's a development on each album, um, you know, as a songwriter, as a musician, as a producer. So the very first album I didn't produce, but the other three, I did take the role of producer. I think my, my writing's got better uh, and the depth of what I'm writing about has become more personal in some way. So the last album, I have a song about my dad and that's a very hard to perform. It's just trumpet and piano. And I wanted to... Uh, write a kind of song for my dad. I miss you so But you'll never know Are you there? Are you proud? I'm doing my thing Just like you taught me Can you see me? Trying so hard You said I could do this If I worked hard I wish you could see me But you had to go Go away Wish you could have stayed 
and I think that is um, some of my better writing and certainly more jazz under that heading as well. So that has a, a different meaning, whereas something like Busy Always Busy uh, on the album before that is fun. And I remember when I was writing that, a lot of people were kind of questioning, well, is she jazz? Like this song is jazz, but this isn't jazz. I mean, all these different flavors. I thought I'm going to write a song that from the minute it starts, you know, it's jazz. What does that mean? And in my head, I was like, bum, ba, da, bum, da, da. we're going to have this kind of bass line going on so that we know this is a jazz song. singing that it's so much fun so I don't think I, d I don't have favorites I have different stages and I can see how some songs maybe I'm happy with but I accept that that was the stage I was at at the time I was writing it and I'm currently writing my next one so who knows what that one's going to be <laughs> well when you did this one in 2019 which was the uh, one that we alluded to earlier fierce and non-compliant yeah. You had some guest appearances on there, a bassist, Snow Owl, and then you also uh, had Kim Cipher, saxophonist, on there. And the, the music that they contributed uh, is, is quite marvelous. Oh, I've been, honestly, and, and I say this all the time, and I don't know how it happens, I'm so fortunate and grateful for the people that I know and work with, and I, I don't know how that's happened uh, at all, um, but the musicians and people I work with are just amazing and make such a big difference to kind of, you know, what I'm doing and the end product as such. So um, Snow Owl, uh, and again, this is a, a really good example of going with the flow because I was writing a song, uh, and so just I'm pointing to my piano here, but um, I was just writing a song at the piano and on the fourth chord, and it was just like, yeah, it's just playing piano chords. And on the fourth chord, for some reason, I suddenly thought, ooh, Snow Owl would be really good playing bass on this song. I don't know why, it, it was just one of those moments. And um, and I thought, I'm just gonna, and I messaged his manager and I said, I know this is crazy. Cause I just, I'd interviewed him for Jazz in Europe, but I didn't know him as such. And, um, and I just messaged his manager and said, I know this is crazy, but do you think he might be like a guest performer? Uh, and she's, she said, yes, he loves your work, just, just message him. Um, so, you know, he agreed, you know, to um, play on two songs, but I went to Vienna. You know, so I went to Vienna to record these two songs with him uh, and he hired a castle. <laughs> he said, so I've booked somewhere for us to record. And it was a castle, which is where he recorded his album. Uh, and we did like two live takes. And also before that, because I had pneumonia, so I wasn't very well. So I, I thought we were just going over there to record bass and then I'd come back, take the bass parts and put all the rest of it. Um, but it was all it was all live. The two songs with Snow Owl were done in a, in a castle. Yes, I know, crazy, right? And which two were those? 
Um, one called Don't Say and the other one called um, I Don't Want It. Tell me, can you feel me? Like I feel you. Again, they're very different as they would be because it's it's very much I wrote them with Snow Owl in mind. So it wasn't a song I'd written and then kind of Snow Owl did his thing to it. I very much wrote it with the space for him to do his thing. Um, so yes, one song is just bass and vocal, and the other is piano, bass, and vocal, um, which was wonderful. And another guest I had was Adam Cooper who is a, an amazing theatre star. So he was the lead in Singing in the Rain on Broadway and in, in the West End. And I went to school with him. And for years and years and years since school, we've been saying, oh, we must do something together. And I was writing this song and it just wasn't working. There was something missing. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I remember rehearsing it with my musicians. And it was like, there's some, I don't know, something missing. And I suddenly thought, it's a duet. That's what's missing. I'm going to call Adam. <laughs> Always follow your heart. You must follow your heart. Always follow your heart. But what if it's wrong? I follow my heart. Yes, you followed your heart. But it tore you apart. Yes, it tore you apart. So what do we do now? seen each other I think for 15 years and we you know turned up at the studio and that session was the best session I've ever had that that session was my absolute favorite it was amazing so one of the tracks on that album is not the one where you did a stairwell vocal I definitely did yeah. two in the stairs it for, for the album black white and a little bit uh, and a little bit of gray what prompted that question was uh, you mentioned in a castle because when I Listen to Mistress and I Broke the Rules, which are those stairwell vocals. Yes. Uh, it, it would only lend itself that it would have happened in a castle. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a similar type of thing. And I think the thing with my voice is it's quite, for some reason, I mean, there's certain acoustics that suit my voice and I actually feel freer to sing. And the stairs, we, you know, we were in the studio and we just had a break and I just was going down the stairs to kind of get a bit of fresh air. But I was still singing some, some lines in my head as I was going down the stairs. And I'm like, oh, the acoustics in the stairs is great. Let's record in the stairs. Been fighting so long and so hard Not known as someone who gives 
pushing and crying and hurting Frustrated, elated, disappointed But I know better Don't know how I ended up this way I ended up being your mistress Your mistress So yeah, it's an acoustic thing. <laughs> and it's great. I mean, it sounds so wonderful. And, you know, most people, as you know, Fiona, sing in the shower, but uh, very few people <laughs> sing in the I stairwell. I sing in the stairs, apparently, yeah. <laughs> I know, I need to think of something different this time, because I've done that on a, on a few tracks now. So I've done a castle, and I've done the stairs. So I need to think about with my next album, if I can, if there's somewhere else slightly random that I can sing in. Well, I have the perfect location for you. Because I don't think anyone's ever done it, even though it's it's a common phrase used all the time. It, maybe you should record something in the shower. In the shower, maybe. I and you know what? And I don't sing in the shower. And, and everyone talks about that, don't they? I've never done that. Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing in the shower and see how, how it works with my voice. And then I can credit you. If I end up singing in the shower, I will credit you on my next album. So what about in your country right now uh, with lockdown? Are live performances and gigs back on the horizon right now, or is it still a ways away? They're on the horizon. So, for example, we're allowed to do live streams. So some of the venues are open, so we can't have an audience in, but the performers are allowed to go in and live, you know, so we can do a set, but live stream it so an audience can't come in. So that's slowly starting to happen again. There's also um, gigs that have been keep being postponed. So June, July and August, they seem to be kind of confirming that this gig is now going ahead. So I think, yeah, from about June, um, we should see um, most of the venues opening up, but with obviously with social distancing and, and half capacity, because I think that's the biggest issue is the, the capacity, because a lot of small jazz clubs, um, they can't afford to run at half capacity. So it's all very well saying you can open, but only have half the amount of people. Well, you know, financially, they, they can't cover costs. And we have had a few jazz clubs that have shut and are not reopening at all, which is very sad. So I think, to be honest, it's one of those, it's slowly starting to open up a bit, but it's going to be a long time. So as we move toward the close uh, of our interview today, I, I would like to see if I could uh, squeeze out a little timeline from you. You mentioned or alluded to another recording. Uh, any uh, dates in mind? Definitely this year. I mean, we, we're not in the studio yet to record the rest of the material, but it will happen. Where are we now? April. I, I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to put a date on it now. I will definitely have finished recording it by July, and I would like to release it by November at the latest. Well, that sounds great, and it's something for us to look forward to so that we could hear more of your music. And in Thank the you. meantime, how can our listeners hear more of your music and learn more about you? Oh, well, thank you. Um, my website, I, I'm all over social media, but my website is just fionaross.co.uk. Or if you type in Google Fiona Ross Jazz, I appear, <laughs> I appear to be everywhere. Um, so and I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Spotify and YouTube. So, but yes, if you type in Fiona Ross Jazz, then you should be able to find me quite easily, I hope. 
Well, Fiona, this has been time well spent, and I appreciate your giving us this opportunity to engage in conversation with you for All That's Jazz. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I felt like we could have talked for hours, so it's probably just as well you're ending it, because I can talk for ages. But it's been honestly such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Fiona Ross. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you like today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.